I'm grateful for this opportunity to talk about nature and the role of natural law in Catholic social teaching. It's one part of my current sabbatical project. I'm trying to write uh, both a monograph on that subject as well as to do an anthology with appropriate introductions. And I'm happy to have opportunities to speak about this and especially to speak about the focus of Thomas Aquinas here on your special day in honor of St. Thomas. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, I believe, is someone who uh, would give us great help in understanding uh, and give us some of the discipline and some of the, the maturity in handling Catholic social teaching, especially given that modern Catholic social teaching, as you probably know, is a very wide and sometimes unwieldy body of doctrines and the interpretations that have been given to Catholic social teaching are, are sometimes really quite various. A uh, little less formally, I think that Catholic social teaching documents often get hijacked for various political agendas and that Thomism can give you a really great help in sorting all this out. And so that's what I, what I mean when I'm thinking about that term philosophical underpinnings. It's not only that it gives us in Thomism some of the philosophical doctrines like nature and the natural law and that I'll be focusing on especially today, but it also gives an opportunity to, to find the appropriate principles of interpretation, the appropriate hermeneutics for understanding this relatively unwieldy and slowly maturing body of doctrines. As I've indicated to you on the handout, um, it comes in a very wide variety of documents, beginning of course with some of the revelation of Jesus and the New Testament, but then in each period of history there have been important contributions to our understanding of the Catholic positions on social order. And then particularly in the modern period, we have a series of papal encyclicals and conciliar decrees that are about this. And those, that body of doctrine, which is simply the papal encyclical texts and the modern conciliar documents, they emerge only slowly over the course of about 250 years. And in each case, the particular document is always trying to answer questions raised at the time. So they don't lay out the whole body of Catholic social teaching all at once, but are rather interested in making particular contributions. Thomism gives a particular insight into all this. So let me develop the very first point on the outline in light of that. The modern Catholic social teaching documents begin about 1740 when the first encyclicals are written by Benedict XIV. And in the period from 1740 until the time of Leo XIII, what you have are the popes using this relatively new form of giving an argument and making a position. And they're doing so in response to modern philosophy, which they perceive as particularly dangerous for the social order and particularly disturbing for sound thinking. In particular, what has their attention is naturalism and various efforts on the part of modern thinkers to assert that within human mind and within human nature, there are all the answers that one needs for organizing society. What the popes in that pre-Leonine period are doing is largely urging that this is to be forgetful of divine providence and to be forgetful especially of the divinely ordered end to which human life is directed. And hence there's a great danger of misunderstanding what it is that humans need in social organization. But with Leo XIII, we get something very distinctly different, both in terms of the way it's presented and in terms of understanding what the problem is. We could do more on that, but I'm just going to summarize it by suggesting that what the crucial linchpin historically was, was the loss of the papal states. 
When there is a loss of the Papal States and the Italian understanding of Italy as a unity and as a nation, the popes initially are flummoxed and they are trying to figure out the right stand. I think in particular of Pius IX, who had begun his papacy urging Italian unification and urging Italian nationalism, and within two years was driven out of Rome and almost died had it not been for the French legions who saved him at Gaeta. When he came back to Rome under their own auspices, he became what was called the prisoner of the Vatican because they didn't yet have legal or political arrangements sorted out. And he himself contributed to various important theological projects and indeed to papal social teaching. But with Leo, there was something new. And what I believe was new in bringing it to bear on the situation was Thomism. As you may know, his own very first encyclical was called Eterni Patris, and it was a call to Catholic intellectual world to return to St. Thomas. There had been indeed many departures from St. Thomas, especially in the direction of Romantic philosophy, but also in Cartesian philosophy. That is, many people understood Descartes as what modern Catholic philosophical thought was about. Leo himself had studied Thomism, courtesy both of a, a brother who was a Jesuit and at the hands of Dominicans who were keeping the tradition of St. Thomas alive. And when he wrote that encyclical in 1879 that began the renaissance of scholastic thought, I firmly believe that what he had in mind was the need for an appropriate philosophical orientation in order to give arguments from the side of reason as well as faith in the area of Catholic social teaching. Sometimes when one reads about Catholic social teaching, and especially the role of Leo, one thinks about his great 1891 encyclical, the Rerum Novarum. And I think that that is a very important document, but I think that it would be wrong to envision Catholic social teaching even in its modern provenance as beginning with that one. In fact, before Rerum Novarum, there is a good baker's dozen of encyclicals on themes of Catholic social teaching by Leo, although none of the same prominence as Rerum Novarum, but they show his own interest in thinking about the matter and especially in using Thomism. Again, to put it in just short compass here, it would need much more careful layout in a, in a, in a monograph, I think that what you have is Leo giving the world, giving Catholic world, a good 10 years head start by urging them to renew their understanding of Thomism so that it could be used appropriately for Catholic social teaching. The way in which I believe that this worked is primarily twofold. First, there is the great devotion that Thomism has to the integration of faith and reason. Not that they are identical in scope by any means, but rather that there is a harmony. I picture them, if you want to think graphically, as two intersecting circles. Some things you can know only by revelation, some things you can know only by reason, but that there is a fair overlap of the things that you can know in either method. One has not only those preliminaries that are given, for instance, at the start of the Summa, when one is thinking about the possibility for proving the existence of the God in whom we have faith, but that throughout the realm of ethics and of social thought, there are any number of such things that can be known by more than one way. Thomism provides that. But it also provides by its concentration on the notion of nature and the notion of natural law, a way in which to argue about matters of ethics and to show the foundations and the means of deducing some of the appropriate norms in matters of ethics and politics by the way in which it combines Aristotle's thought about nature 
as well as Revelation's thought about God as a divine lawgiver. Without trying to tell the whole history of natural law theory, I think that's an important matter, but I'm not going to do it here, you have only hints and allusions to the very fullness of natural law teaching in a thinker like Aristotle. The actual verbal echoes of it are only two or three and are largely undeveloped. And my own particular commitment on that subject is to say that Aristotle does have some of the background necessary for saying that nature is normative, but that he tends to see the normativity in his virtue theory rather than in any elaboration of a theory of natural law. I suspect the reason for that is, is that he doesn't have a strong sense of a personal God who is a lawgiver. He does recognize the normativity of nature, but he doesn't envision it explicitly or develop it in terms of a natural law. Whereas the great theorists of the revealed tradition know from Revelation that God is a lawgiver, but they don't particularly have much of a tradition of seeing it in the full version of natural law, largely because of the way in which the very notion of original sin and the way in which nature is somewhat damaged by the effects of original sin, that they don't tend to stress the natural law theory. What one finds in Thomas Aquinas is especially that marvelous synthesis of the tradition of a divine lawgiver and a strong and vigorous notion of nature and the way of seeing these things together in the treatise on law. I suspect that many of you have studied that or will study that in the course of your experience here. Leo is the one who brings this together very explicitly, I believe, and gives everybody the direction in Eterni Patris that they need to study that Thomism, and then begins to use it more and more, not only in the writings on political order, but then in 1891 with his groundbreaking encyclical on the economic order, Rerum Novarum. That tradition will continue in tremendous detail and with great fecundity in the writings of people like Benedict, uh, Pius XI, who is even more scholarly than Leo XIII. And Leo, um, Pius XI is absolutely fascinating in the way in which he uses Thomism. He has more than 20 encyclicals, and even those encyclicals which are apparently, or at least superficially, unlikely candidates for being on Catholic social teaching, things like the encyclical on the 700th anniversary uh, of, the, uh, of the death of Francis of Assisi, or the 1500th anniversary of the death of Augustine, or even his relatively late encyclical on the recitation of the rosary, all end up having Catholic social teaching as a serious pole of conversation. Absolutely amazing to read and to see the things that he thinks applicable. And in almost every case, he is using Thomism quite explicitly for making the necessary distinctions. That tradition continues, but let me get back to my outline. What I've attempted to say thus far is simply that Catholic social teaching takes many forms, but in the papacy of Leo XIII, there is suddenly a new dimension to it, and I think that the reason is the loss of the papal states. That is, no longer was Catholic social teaching something that you could do juridically. The idea of Christendom is leaving Europe, where there had been Christian emperors and Christian kings and Christian princes and Christian dukes. I presume it went down as far as Christian dog catchers, I don't know. But in the course of Christendom as a juridical entity, the way in which you did Catholic social teaching was usually by the way in which you established particular practices and laws and the way in which you encouraged the other regimes and jurisdictions, especially in Europe, to do so. But after the loss of the Papal States, following, of course, on the French Revolution, following on the revolutions of 1830 and 1848, following upon the internecine wars of Europe, no longer could you do it juridically. Instead, you had to do it by making good argument. And so what Leo seems to me to be in a position to do, and what he does, 
is to see the problem in a new way, namely that he must do it not just juridically, but he must do it by appeal to good and solid reasoning, that is, to appeal not only to revelation to those who are also members of the household of the faith, but also to do it by good reasoning, and that he thinks the Thomism is the most likely avenue to do that in finding in its category of nature and in the tremendous access it gives to the natural law properly understood, a way in which to be reasonable with any other person open to reason and goodwill. Throughout its history, I'm sort of on point number two, what you will find in Catholic social teaching, not just in the modern period, but throughout the whole of the history, you will find that there have been invariably three main areas of discourse, namely a concern with economics, a concern with politics, and a concern with family and culture. In this focus on those three, you will find that some ages in the church and some of the various individuals and documents who explain Catholic thought about social order will emphasize one of these rather than another, but that there is invariably a need to attend to all three. One still sees that in the period of modern Catholic social teaching, that is in the period of papal encyclicals and conciliar decrees, but here I also have a thesis that I think is important to share at point number two on the outline and that will be important to consider in a Thomistic way. And what I, what I do is I call it the problem of silos. That is, when you look through the record of Catholic encyclical, of papal encyclicals, and of conciliar decrees, more often than not, with Leo and with Pius and with all of those individuals who have attempted encyclicals, they tend to focus the encyclical on just one topic, on just the economic order, or on just the political order, or on just the family and cultural order. And they do it, I suspect, for reasons of clarity, when in fact they mean to address all of these. Just consider, again, for example, you have in Pius XI in 1930 his encyclical Casti Canubi, which is a defense of the Catholic position on marriage, and especially a defense of the position against contraception, shortly after the Anglican Communion had decided to officially embrace the appropriateness of contraception. So in one encyclical he does that. The very next year, in 1931, he addresses himself in quadragesimo anno to the economic order. And there, using the 40th anniversary of Rerum Novarum, 1891 to 1931, you have him focusing on economic issues indeed updating and developing yet further some of the things that Leo had talked about in Rerum Novarum. For example, Leo had talked about the necessity of a living wage. Suddenly within Pius XI's vocabulary, it's now the talk about a family wage. He does so, of course, because he's thinking that it's not enough simply to think about removing labor and the price of labor from laissez-faire economics and insisting that the price of labor must always be set for the needs of a worker in order to sustain himself and his family. Pius brings out that family nature of the consideration specifically by calling it a family wage. One will see this again and again throughout the history of the encyclical tradition. But what I mean to say is, is that because the popes tend to emphasize separate topics in separate encyclicals, there was a curious phenomenon in the interpretation of the encyclicals, namely the silo effect, where those who are interested in economics could focus on those particular topics almost to the exclusion of questions of the political order and questions of the family and cultural order. And similarly, people interested in the family and cultural issues often were insufficiently interested in the economic issues. The effort of the popes to bring that back together seems to me to have culminated in present history in Benedict XVI. There too, I find that almost all of his encyclicals, 
in fact have a dimension in Catholic social thinking, but in Caritas in Veritate in particular, you have the interest that Benedict has in showing the implication of thought about the economics for family and culture very directly all in the same encyclical and vice versa with the other topics. So what I mean to say is to get an appropriate appreciation for these three issues and their interrelation, there is need to overcome the inclination to make them siloed. Thomism has a special role to play in doing that precisely because of its focus on nature and the nature of the person and the, the familial and social nature of the person. That is, by virtue of its own commitments, namely that we really do have a nature that is so different than the nature of every other kind of creature, and by virtue of the Thomistic commitment to seeing that nature as personal and familial and social, there is already and standing principle within Thomism that helps one, I think, to incorporate these insights and to see them more easily. The next part in part number three of your outline is that it seems to me to be very important, both in keeping with Thomism, but especially in keeping with the nature of the subject matter, to realize that Catholic social teaching invariably has a set of paired principles. For those of you who have studied in greater detail things like Thomistic metaphysics, you're mindful of existence and essence, substance and accident, and so forth in all of the various themes that we think of in Thomistic metaphysics, where I think we have to consider the matter if we're going to do it adequately in terms of paired principles and always bring the other one to bear. Catholic social teaching in the modern period tends to put this into a set of paired principles. I've listed for you on the sheet some of the more prominent ones, namely the tremendous importance and demands of the common good, and yet a way of asserting that that doesn't allow for a reduction of the person to being a mere individual, a mere part of the whole, but as something that has an intrinsic importance in its own right, and you get that interesting term, the dignity of the human person. I say interesting simply, and let me make a footnote out of this, I find, and here is one of the contributions I hope to make in this monograph that I'm preparing on the philosophical underpinnings of Catholic social teaching, I find in even papal social, in, papal social encyclicals an unwitting ambiguity on that notion of dignity. You'll find it also in the catechism. And when I say this, I don't mean to be critical of either the catechism or the social encyclicals, but rather mean to be constructively critical by virtue of pointing out what unfortunately has fallen into an ambiguity that confuses some. I think that there is both a metaphysical dignity and a moral dignity, but that sometimes this coalesces in the actual statements of papal and conciliar teaching by using only the noun without a qualifying adjective. More specifically, what I mean, we have a dignity by virtue of our nature, human nature, a rational nature, a personal nature, and yet the dignity that we have and the respect to which it entitles us and the kind of conduct to which it summons us also means that dignity is used in a moral sense which is related to, but not identical with or reducible to the metaphysical sense. There is a moral dignity that is associated with innocence and with acting in a way that is in accord with the moral law and in accord with the civil law. I believe myself, and I know it's an arguable thesis, but I mean believe myself that there is a possibility of losing our moral dignity. And by losing our moral dignity, by heinous crime, we can indeed subject ourselves to the need for punishment and the need for confinement. If you don't make that distinction between moral dignity and metaphysical dignity, one finds some people taking a stance that doesn't allow for capital punishment 
or doesn't even ever allow for the use of lethal force, when in fact it seems to me that the demands of the common good and the demands of innocence require that there be a use of lethal force or of confinement in prison, et cetera, et cetera, precisely because of the loss of moral dignity. So I mean to suggest by way of that example, this constant necessity for paired principles, and I list some of the others that are there. It seems to me that you have obligations of justice, things like the living wage and the family wage that I've already used by way of example, as well as obligations of charity and mercy, and that those obligations sometimes coalesce, but sometimes are distinct, and that one cannot be reduced to another. This is part of what I mean when I say that there is a necessity for a hermeneutics in order to give a proper understanding of what the documents say and what they don't say. At least in the world in which I live, there is frequently an effort to coalesce, I believe unfairly, what the obligations of charity and what the obligations of justice are. And that when you do that, suddenly you're expecting even people who do not have the resources of the faith to fulfill obligations of charity, or that you try, I think misguidedly in my judgment, to ground what the nature of those obligations are on the wrong source. There are thirdly some obligations that we have about providing for our family. That is, one sees that there will be an economic implication like the right of private property because there is a moral obligation in the familial and cultural order. But seeing this difference and yet relatedness between duty and right, very typical Thomistic strategy, and one that makes much better sense of the Catholic social teaching tradition than if one does not have some of those philosophical distinctions in play. Let me again put it in a way that I hope will be a little bit controversial, but may be memorable and a good source for conversation among us. I would like to hold, it's the, here mentioned in the third part of my outline, it's also related to the fifth point. I do not think that there are any fundamental in the sense of primitive rights. I think that what you have to say is that there are fundamental duties that give us derivatively a set of rights. One sees this, for instance, in the property question in this way. While I do believe that there is a right to private property, indeed, bless the Lord for all the benefactors who make wonderful colleges like this possible, but that right to private property, I think, begins and is grounded in the duty that we have, the duty that is already divinely given by our nature as well as divinely revealed, a duty that we have to take care of our families, to take care of our spouses, to take care of our children, to take care of our aged parents, and then more broadly to take care of others in the nearby community and progressively those further and further away but nonetheless part of the human community. And then one could not do those duties without the right of private property. But private property does seem to me not an inalienable right. It seems to me something that's subject to taxation and subject to some communal decisions with regard to its use. Likewise, the right to life. Again, I'm very deeply involved in the pro-life movement. I suspect many of you are here as well, and we know the importance there. And yet, I think that while in the public domain we often must use the rhetoric of rights and that there's not sufficient time in most political campaigns or in most efforts at the providing for appropriate legislation or in the efforts to provide better judicial remedy, while there's not always time to explain everything that we hold about the matter, I think that it's deeply important for us in our more reflective moments here at an institution of higher learning, I think it's very important to see that even the right to life isn't absolute but derivative and is connected to innocence, but it may be forfeited by conduct as an aggressor or by heinous crime. That is, the right is primarily the right of those who are innocent to their lives. And that what is primarily the duty, it starts with being a negative duty, not to take innocent human life, and then progressively extends to the obligations we have 
to try to enhance and protect and educate and defend other innocent human lives, but that life itself may be forfeit as when, in self-defense, we might have to use lethal force against an aggressor when a police authority, using, of course, the protocols that have been devised for the appropriate use of lethal force, may have to use lethal force and intend that force to be lethal in response to an aggressor, just as a country must defend its own innocence and defend its way of life against a country that is an aggressor in a just war, and yet always managed by the rules that pertain to the appropriate use of force and power in a war. All of that makes sense only with these appropriate Thomistic distinctions, and in particular for the primacy of duty and the derivative character of rights. Just to follow out the outline, another pair of them that's quite interesting is the principle of solidarity and the principle of subsidiarity. That is, the principle of solidarity is, is that our own obligations go beyond merely our immediate families and our extended families and our local communities and could extend even to those that we know only by the media at great distance. But there are certain obligations of solidarity. And yet the appropriate way of determining what conduct is required in a given polity, a given regime, a given jurisprudence, uses that principle of subsidiarity. It's again one of those particular principles that emerge by name and explicitly in modern Catholic social teaching. The principle of subsidiarity is found especially in the writings of Pius XI, who expressly denominates Thomas Aquinas as his source, not so much a source for the name of the term, but a resource for finding the philosophical justification for this principle. And Another part of it that, again, is, I think, so deeply Thomistic about Pius's use of it is that it's a double-edged principle. That is, it's a principle which says that the appropriate level of governmental authority ought to be the lowest level of authority, which can know the contingent facts on the ground and apply them rightly. But it's also a justification for moving up the ladder that when a lower level of authority is insufficient either in the breadth of its vision or in the resources that it has to handle the matter, there is an appropriate moving up the ladder to a higher level of authority in order to see that the duty gets done. This is something that is not only in the economic world. You'll notice, of course, that Pius XI articulates the principle of subsidiarity at the same time that the world is seeing the absolute tragedy that had occurred in the Soviet Union when they just tried to decide in Moscow what they ought to plant in the Ukraine and didn't understand the weather conditions in the Ukraine and led to mass starvation. But it's also found in Pius XI's pair of encyclicals on family life, not only in Costi Canubi, but in some of the earlier ones near the beginning of his papacy. It even shows up, interestingly, in the writing on Francis of Assisi that's very early on, uh, 1926. And the way it shows up is to suggest that sometimes in the order of family life, while families have the primary duty and care for the education of their children, and hence have a prerogative with regard to the decision-making on how their children are to be educated, there are those sad cases of families which are doing injustice and even abuse of some of their children, and when there is necessary for local authority to step in to rescue the children and to provide them with appropriate uh, parents in loco, in place of their natural parents, all this because of the duty that one has, not only individually, but by the principle of solidarity with others in the community for the proper raising of their children. He himself uses it in this two-edged sword fashion and does so, I think, with that great dexterity of understanding how principles work. Lastly, among the examples, from the time of the Gospels, we see Jesus reinforcing what comes to be stated in modern papal social teachings as the duty to render obedience to legitimate authority, but also, as a correlative with this, the right to freedom of religion, thought, and the peaceful expression of ideas. In the 
recent decades and in the debates that have surfaced about this one, I was very gratified this morning at Mass uh, to hear us praying as part of what we did, uh, praying uh, for religious liberty. Um, but in the course of thinking about this, and it's the place where one finds it in Catholic social teaching, the debate is wholly skewed when one doesn't understand these earlier encyclicals, the appropriate hermeneutics for their interpretation, or its Thomistic roots. Usually in contemporary discussions of the principle of religious liberty, the discussions are very naive in thinking that this only comes to be part of Catholic social teaching with dignitatis humanae, that is the declaration on religious liberty that is part of the Second Vatican Council's documents. In fact, one finds in Leo, one finds in Pius XI, elaborate accounts. I mean, even in some of Pius XI's most stirring defenses of the appropriate reverence that needs to be given for the true religion and the obligations one has of pursuing the true religion, he is also making a case in those societies which are divided in their religions to do what the good birds like to do and to sound the note of religious liberty and the way in which one must continue to give people the right to pursue the truth about religion and that there must be no forced baptisms. It's very interesting to see Pius XI making the same claims and in fact, in my judgment, doing what the 18th century popes had done. In, in the background debates of this, again, not my main theory, the thesis for this morning, this afternoon, but in the background debates, for instance, the ones over Quantacura and Merari Vos, where some people see a direct contradiction to Dignitatis Humanae, namely Dignitatis Humanae tends to focus on the right of religious liberty, where Quantacura and Merari Vos, the 18th and 19th century documents, tend to condemn religious liberty, a very simple effort of distinguishing the meaning of terms really suffices to handle most of the problems. Because Quantacura and Mirari Vos had condemned religious liberty in the sense of a political term standing for religious indifferentism as if truth in matters of religion had no public bearing. Whereas when some of the same popes or their immediate successors turn to the questions about whether there can ever be forced baptisms or how should we handle those who are pursuing the truth about matters of religion, the papacy turns invariably to the Thomistic principle that we have an obligation to worship the true God and therefore must have a right to seek to know the truth about religion so that we can know the true God. Let me turn now in the fourth and fifth parts of the outline here to the, directly to the question of natural law. What I would like to emphasize about natural law, and especially to see Thomism as the main proponent of an adequate natural law thought, is that any adequate theory of natural law as a moral law seems to me to require that we have three necessary areas of focus namely a theological focus, an anthropological focus, and an epistemological focus. You see these in Thomism, and I think it, it's what makes of natural law theory a far more compelling as well as a far more consistent theory than some of the other contenders. And I'll mention in the fifth point, natural rights theory as I think an effort on the part of some to take what you get from natural law, but in fact not an adequate way of doing so. In these three areas of focus that are found within Thomistic natural law thinking, there must first of all be a theological root to it, namely, without a vision of God as the creator and the one who is the author of nature, natural law theory will be extremely hampered. You will find intimations of it in Sophocles. You will find intimations of it in the Stoics. You will find various mentions of it in Cicero and other such ancient documents. And yet, the only way in which I think those things are compelling is when one brings out even more than those texts do 
The way in which there is God as the creator, who is the author of nature and who has himself imposed within human nature this set of laws. That is, it's not a set of laws outside of human nature, but ones that are duly recorded within human nature because they have been placed there by a lawgiver. That seems to me to be the element that is only minimal or maybe altogether missing in Aristotle or in the Stoics. That is, while they have a sense of the effect of it in that human nature is something common and universal throughout all the peoples of the world, missing the theological focus doesn't give them an adequate source of normativity. It doesn't give them an explanation of the ground for why the natural law is normative. Secondly, there is necessarily an anthropological focus. That is, one has got to think about there being a genuine human nature in which the laws of God are inscribed. Whether you have the contemporary existentialists who deny that there is a nature, or at least a nature anything other than the nature in which we're condemned to make free choices, or whether you have some of the trends within even Christianity to see nature as so badly wounded that it is not reliable for showing us a nature, you have an insufficiency of motive for getting to a natural law theory. Here I'm thinking, of course, of not just Augustine, but the Augustinian tradition. I mean, with Augustine, as we know, there is a marvelous account of the nature of original sin. And the way in which original sin has its effect subsequently on us. But whether it's in the texts of Augustine, or much more likely, the texts of Augustinians over the centuries, one has an inclination to see nature as badly wounded. Nature is badly wounded so as not, in every respect, showing what is so morally normative, or a nature that is wounded in its apparatus for knowing what is normative because of the darkening of the intellect and the way in which the weakening of the will and the disorder of the inclinations makes it hard for us to find natural law and Perhaps there's a difficulty with finding it because the nature is so badly wounded. Here, Thomas is at a great advantage. While he does indeed have a healthy sense of original sin, he also has such a strong sense of nature and such a strong sense of the powers of our reason that there is much more that he thinks that we can get both about nature and about our reason for getting it, and hence he's stronger on this second element. Thirdly, there is, of course, the epistemological aspect. Both in the Thomistic approach, in which there is necessarily, necess necessarily a matter of a speculative movement of reason that has to precede the practical movements of reason, it is human nature that we must know and the demands of human nature that we can see by understanding the end for which God has intended us and the attractions, the inclinations toward the end that are in our natural tendencies. This is a place, of course, again, where original sin and its effects rears its head for Thomas, and yet he is capable of saying that even though we look to natural inclination as the source of knowledge of what is normative within our nature, we have to discern the difference between those inclinations which are sound and those inclinations which are wounded either because of original sin or because of the dynamics of society and culture where certain things have been forgotten or obscured or ignored. Thomas offers, from Leo XIII on, a tremendous resource for seeing all three of these areas of focus at work in a natural law theory. Just by way of a simple and easy contrast, but more would need to be developed in a longer answer, think of the way in which even a figure like Immanuel Kant, in his various writings on ethics, still likes to use the term natural law. It shows up, for instance, in the third formulation of the categorical imperative, and yet, there is on the part of Kant a resistance in principle to thinking that our minds are capable of discerning the nature of anything, let alone that anything as bodily and physical and organic 
could possibly be the source of anything morally normative. Instead, on the part of Kant and Kantian followers, there is an effort to make practical reason legislative. And so when one turns to the text of Kant, there is, even though there's the use of a term like natural law, there is an effort to have reason being legislative, that is to lay down maxims that would be suitable for being treated as natural law, rather than an effort on speculative reasons part for discovering what is naturally normative because placed there by the author of our nature. Likewise, I think in contemporary Catholic discourse, it would be the subject for a whole different lecture, but consider the debates that rage and have raged for 30 years between traditional natural law thinking and the new natural law thinking. Without trying to wade entirely into those muddy waters, I would urge that much of the new natural law thinking really turns out to be deeply Kantian in its way of proceeding, that is thinking of the reason, the practical reason as legislative, rather than in the traditional natural law that say Ralph McInerney, Russ Hittinger and others have been so strong to urge as being first speculative before it can be properly practical. That is, there is this need to think of reasons, resources, and ability to discern the nature of things, and particularly to be able to discern the, the moral norms that have been legislated for our nature and that can be seen. The, the, the issue comes to a head in those discussions that have been made about whether the natural law theorists, Thomas Aquinas or otherwise, is guilty of the naturalistic fallacy an argument that at the level of logic is very compelling, but an argument that can be quickly answered when one realizes that the debate is not really about a logical de deduction. The issue is about whether or not one can discern potentiality and inclination and the telos that is built into our nature so that a proper understanding of potentiality and teleology gives one, I believe, an answer to the naturalistic fallacy. This is, I think, item number four, deeply important. Number five, and to conclude, among the other contenders for a natural law point of view and among the other contenders for how to give an interpretation of modern Catholic social teaching are those particular thinkers who focus on natural rights and on the identification of rights. It is a very interesting project to consider the way in which the language of rights starts coming into papal social teaching and starts coming into conciliar social teaching that is, it tends to come in, especially with Paul VI among the papacy and the Second Vatican Council. Prior to that time, one has only minimal use of the language of rights. I suspect that the popes, with their ear to the ground to contemporary political theory, the conciliar fathers, especially in focusing on those traditions that we know of from representative democracies like our own and other things in the Western tradition, we're much more comfortable with the language of rights. That is, they have an immediate and intuitive appeal in the way that natural law doesn't have that immediate intuitive appeal to many people, and in fact is something that is deeply suspect in the realm of the world, and especially the intellectual world, by virtue of carrying so much heavy baggage. That is, can one even get to know natures or has that been rendered obscure and impossible for the new statistical dimensions that have been pre preferred in modern science. I think that part of the problem has to do with an, an inadequate appreciation for the historical roots of the rights tradition. <clears throat> As I try to explain in item number five on the handout, I think that the natural rights tradition tends to piggyback on what is a much better founded tradition in natural law. That is, when one sees the natural rights tradition, it seems to me that it is rooted not really in natural law thinking, but in the social contract tradition. And the social contract tradition, whether of Locke, or of Hobbes, or of Rousseau, or the use that Kant makes of it, and then many thinkers subsequent to that, 
There is a steadfast refusal on the part of the social contract tradition to thinking about the fact that God created the world and has a plan. Even the myth of nature that is so prominent in social contract writings like Locke and like Hobbes, not to mention Rousseau, that is a substitute, I believe, for the Garden of Eden story. It is an effort to replace what they would consider one myth with another, and a myth that allows us to detach this thinking about moral normativity from its theological root. But it is also something that is conveniently removing it from its anthropological root, namely thinking that there is a nature in which those divine commands can be discovered, and taking the only third axis that's left, a reversal of the tradition of epistemology in which speculative work has to precede practical work in knowing the nature and knowing the divine roots and foundations of that nature. Instead, this is replaced for a divinized intellect, our intellects, which now find themselves with these primitive, absolute, inalienable rights and then make a social contract which now is the beginning of normativity so that normativity, moral obligation, political obligation begins only with popular consent, begins only with human decision to found a society and then found a government. For us in this country and nourished on this particular tradition of political philosophy, it can be difficult to appreciate that because we're trained in the tradition of Jefferson and Locke before that of thinking of certain rights as inalienable. And yet, I think that we do better to think of them in a Thomistic fashion, the way in which I believe the actual documents of Catholic social teaching do, of thinking of the rights as derivative, as derived, and as intrinsically limited and needed in so many explicit terms to be limited by appropriate polities, rather than as absolute and in simple, undecidable contention with one another. It is this, I think, that the church has to contribute to the discussion, but of course, for it to contribute to the discussion, it needs to be understood authentically, and the authentic interpretation of it seems to me to require a deep knowledge of Thomism and of its own stance on faith and reason. I've gone about an hour, so I think I'll stop at this point. I hope it's been helpful. I look forward to the special TAC discussions. Thank you.